Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Jason Riley. Jason is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, and a commentator for Fox News. He was awarded the Bradley Prize in 2018, and he's the author of a terrific new book that will be our topic of discussion today, the just-released Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Jason, thanks very much for joining us. Good to be here, Brian. Uh, Thomas Sowell's early life, uh, growing up in Harlem, serving in the military, going on to Ivy League schools, it's, it's quite a compelling story. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about his upbringing and how that upbringing led him uh, to form his views uh, on, on economics, how he moved away from a kind of orthodox Marxist position in his youth and toward uh, a fr- more free market position. Sure. Um, uh, he, uh, you know, it's not that uncommon for uh, uh, conservatives today to have started out uh, on the left. Um, you know, Milton Friedman started out on the left. Uh, Ronald Reagan started out on the left. Um, it's it's especially true of uh, black conservatives um, uh, who, who, who not only start out slightly left of center, but um, way, way on the left. Um, you mentioned Soul starting out as a Marxist, but Clarence Thomas was a Black Panther in college. Uh, Walter Williams, the late Walter Williams, uh, uh, another free market economist, um, was far more sympathetic to the views of, of Malcolm X in his youth than to the views of Martin Luther King. Shelby Steele, another um, uh, race scholar at the, um, at the Hoover Institution, at Stanford University was a was a leftist uh, radical in, in in his early days. So it's so it's not uncommon, and 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 Sol sort of fits that that pattern. Um, he was born in 1930 in the Jim Crow South, so this is a d- depression era. A very poor family. Um, he was orphaned as a as, as a child. Um, never knew his father, who died before he was born, and his mother uh, died in childbirth to a younger brother. Um, uh, so Sol never knew his parents. He was taken in by a distant relative, um, who moved the family, uh, up North to, um, uh, uh, Harlem when he was eight or nine years old. And so he was raised, he was raised there and he was a smart, a smart kid, but he had a rather tumultuous home life and ended up dropping out of high school. He never earned a high school degree and he left home at the age of, of 17, uh, striking out on his own, had a a number of uh, menial jobs, including one for um, for Western Union, uh, and the office was located in in Lower Manhattan, down in the Wall Street area. And he talks about how uh, so this would be the 1940s, how um, he would sometimes ride the bus home, double decker bus home to Harlem at the end of his workday, and um, just sort of watch the neighborhoods change. Uh, on the trip, you know, he'd go up through Wall Street. He'd go past the ritzy shopping districts like Saks Fifth Avenue, uh, turn on to Riverside Drive, and go through uh, uh, other wealthy neighborhoods, um, residential neighborhoods. And then he'd, he'd cross this viaduct, and there would be the tenements, the ghetto, and that's where he would get off. And he would he'd look around and he'd say, "What just happened? You know, why did things look the way they did uh, for for this whole trip until I got up here?" Uh, and he said that Marx explained that uh, he had he had picked up a, a secondhand copy of encyclopedias and 
started reading uh, about Marx on his own. So he was self-taught at this point. He was in his late teens. And he said, you know, Marx offered an explanation that made sense to me, uh, explained my surroundings, uh, the capitalists exploiting the proletariat, the workers, and so forth. And, and um, that, I found that view attractive, he said. And he remained a Marxist, uh, uh, you know, during his stint in the, in the Marines. Uh, he got a GI Bill, um, went to, was able to go to, to college on the GI Bill after leaving the military. Um, so all through his undergraduate days, um, starting out at Howard University, the Black College in D.C., moving on to Harvard, uh, then Columbia, uh, then the U- University of Chicago, where he studied under, under George Stigler and, and Milton Friedman. Uh, these two great economists uh, known for their free market views. All the while, Tom Sowell remained a Marxist. Um, and, and it wasn't until his early 30s, after taking a job in government, that he started to change his views about socialism. He uh, was working in uh, the Department of Labor and studying minimum wage laws in Puerto Rico and um, looked at the employment effects of these laws, particularly on, 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 on minorities. And, and uh, it, it uh, changed his view, not only about uh, minimum wage laws, but about uh, government benevolence in general. And, and that is what, what began his movement away from the left and toward a more free market way uh, of viewing things. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it was a combination of personal experience and study that um, uh, produced the Tom Soul we have today. I'll give you one other quick example of how a personal experience uh, impacted him. He tells a story in his memoir about working uh, as a, a summer intern at the uh, U.S. Public Health Service in the late 50s, working at their headquarters in Washington, D.C. And tells a story about a man uh, who suffered a heart attack on, on the sidewalk outside of the building uh, one afternoon. And um, they brought him into the building and took him to the nurse's office, and, uh, but they determined that he wasn't a government employee, so he couldn't be treated in the building. And so they called a, an ambulance uh, to take him somewhere where he could be treated. And uh, the man died before the ambulance arrived. And for Seoul, this sort of dramatized uh, sort of the nature of bureaucracies, not just government bureaucracies, but bureaucracies in general, and their emphasis on, on procedures uh, rather than results. Here was a man who, who died waiting for a doctor in a building full of doctors. And, and, and Seoul, you know, took away from that experience um, a certain skepticism of, 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 of bureaucrats and, and bureaucracies in general. And it's just one of the many ways in which his life story often informed his, his scholarship later on. Seoul is both an academic economist and has also played the role of a public intellectual. Um, he's written pioneering works on technical scholarly topics, but also written a number of books that are, are really better described as, as political theory or political philosophy. So, you know, one day he's conducting research on Say's Law, the, the next he's writing The Vision of the Anointed. I wonder how, in his, his uh, own view of his own work, uh, he thinks of these different domains. Are they related? Uh, does the academic work inform his writing on his his uh, on you know the more philosophical topics and vice versa? Um, and you know, or, or or is this really just part of the same kind of uh, intellectual portfolio that he approaches the world with? 
Well, um, he is an economist by training, and his specialty was was economic history, history of economic thought, history of ideas. Um, that's what he earned his PhD in uh, studying under Stigler and um, and Milton Friedman. In fact, he he had originally planned to pursue his his PhD at Columbia, where he did his master's under Stigler, because Stigler was the foremost scholar uh, in the country um, on the history of ideas and the history of economic thought. Uh, but Stigler moved to Chicago, um, and so Sol followed him there. Uh, and, and that's how he ended up uh, studying under both Stigler and Friedman, but he went there to study under Stigler. Um, uh, Thomas continued to write in, in, his, in his discipline, economic history, um, uh, and also on, on economics more broadly. Uh, his best-selling book is Basic Economics, which is essentially an economics textbook without any graphs and charts and free of a lot of the typical jargon you find uh, in an economics textbook. But he also wrote uh, an economics textbook for uh, for college, um, with full of graphs and charts and jargon. So he's done he's done both. Um, um, he, however, takes great pride in the fact that most of his books um, are not written for fellow intellectuals, but are in fact written for the general public in very straightforward language that can be understood by the average person. Um, he thinks that is part of the role of a public intellectual to do that. And, and I think he, to some extent, got that from Milton Friedman, who for him was a kind of model public intellectual. After Friedman left teaching in the 1970s, he too wrote books um, for the general public, uh, you know, gave speeches around the country to audiences who were not economists, uh, wrote a column for a Newsweek magazine, and so forth. And Tom, Tom uh, is very much um, uh, you know, pursued that, that model of public intellectualism through his columns, through his books. Um, uh, the thinking there being that um, scholars shouldn't spend all their time simply talking to one another. They should explain their, their discipline to, uh, to non-experts, to non-intellectuals. And so um, uh, he's been something of a popularizer in the way that Friedman, in the way that Friedman was. Um, in terms of his framework of thinking, though, whether he's writing about economic history or, uh, or um, you know, racial preferences or school choice or antitrust law or uh, the civil rights leadership, um, he does have a certain intellectual framework that he's operating from. And that is laid out in his favorite book, which is A Conflict of Visions, um, a book that he published in the mid-1980s, mid 1987, I believe. And uh, it's a book about uh, political philosophy. Um, and it sort of traces our uh, various political and social disputes uh, to how people think about human nature and the way the world works. And he traces these, um, these two conflicting visions, as he, as he puts them, the unconstrained vision and the constrained vision, back hundreds of years. And they're views that people hold even unconsciously. But it's why if someone tells you what they think about military spending, uh, you can probably guess what they think about uh, taxes and abortion and regulation and, 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 and rent control. And all the rest, uh, and um, for Sol, um, the, the the unconstrained vision he sometimes calls the utopian vision, and the constrained vision he sometimes calls the tragic vision. And uh, again, he traces these back hundreds of years to writers like William Godwin and Rousseau 
Adam Smith, uh, down through writers like John Rawls. Um, and, and if you hold that uh, constrained vision, it basically means that you think there are limits to human betterment, um, uh, that there are, are problems uh, that we'd like to solve, but are unlikely to ever um, uh, get rid of altogether. So we may want to end war. Uh, we may want to um, end racism or, and poverty and so forth, but that's not likely to happen. And so uh, the best that we can do is to put in place uh, institutions and processes that help us deal with problems uh, to the best of our ability, problems that we'll probably never entirely eliminate. Uh, so you, you, know, you may want world peace, but it's probably not going to happen. So it's good to have a military in place. Uh, you, you, you may want to end crime, uh, but that too is unlikely to happen. So you're going to need a, a court system to adjudicate disputes and so forth. And you contrast that with this unconstrained or utopian vision, which, is, which essentially says, no, no, there are no limits to human betterment, um, to the certain perfectibility of, of humankind. Um, um, it's just a matter of willpower and reason. And uh, we can not only, you know, simply manage these problems that we have, inequality and so forth, we can solve them entirely. And moreover, we can do so without any trade-offs whatsoever. And, 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 and Sowell says uh, that these are really two views that go back hundreds of years. And if you really want to know where, where he's coming from on, on any number of subjects, um, that's the book the, to read, and that's the framework in which he's, he's really operating. It's part, that book is part of an informal trilogy. Um, the other two were called um, Quest for Cosmic Justice and uh, The Vision of the Anointed. Um, and in those two latter books, he sort of critiques the various visions themselves. But in the first book, A Conflict of Visions, it's, it's a much more a neutral Book. He doesn't hide the fact that he shares that more tragic vision, but he's much more interested in, in simply describing uh, the two visions and, 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 and laying this out as an intellectual framework with which to, to study our, our policy disputes and social disputes uh, down through the ages. You mentioned racial preferences, Jason, and one of the major themes of Sowell's work, of course, is that uh, disparities between groups are not necessarily evidence of over-discrimination, that they may be the result of distinct cultural patterns of, of uh, um, attitudes toward um, economic you know, activity, uh, family, um, that, that there are cultural differences. Uh, yet these days, a leading figure in contemporary left progressivism, Ibram Kendi, has, has become pretty notorious these days defining racism as basically anything that furthers disparities between racial groups. Uh, you know, what is the response uh, that Sol would make to uh, Kendi's position? And uh, what, what explains the resurgence of this idea, which, you know, Sol's work over the years has dismantled? Yeah, so you know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to write, write this book is because I think it's... Um, tragic, really, that um, names like Ibram Kendi and Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ta-Nehisi Coates and Cornell West um, are better known than Thomas Sowell, uh, whose scholarship, I think, uh, runs, runs circles around those guys, maybe around all of them put together. Um, and not only in, in terms of his, his, his breadth uh, of the top topics he's covered, um, 
but the depth and the rigor of his thinking, I think uh, those others do not do not come close to matching. Um, I, I think the the the, the first the first way that, that, that soul would take issue with, with Kendi's premise is, is, um, is to reject the premise itself. Kendi is operating from the premise that, um, unequal outcomes, um, or I should put it this way. He's operating from the premise that equal outcomes are the norm and that where we don't see them, something is wrong. It's an assumption that, that, that human capital, as economists refer to it, um, cultural attitudes and abilities and skills and habits and behaviors, that human capital is evenly distributed among groups in society. And therefore, um, we should see equal outcomes in terms of educational attainment, in terms of uh, income, in terms of uh, representation and skilled professions and so forth. And where we don't see it, um, you know, something, something nefarious is going on. That, that is Kendi's premise. And Sol would say, where is your evidence that equal outcomes are the norm? Pe- people who have studied societies down through history have never found this evenness of outcomes that Kendi is holding up as normal. And, and, and so I think he would start right there. Um, but you're right. Sol, Sol has also shown that, that, that groups that, um, that do have that human capital um, are able to overcome all kinds of things, including being uh, discriminated against by others in society. And he's studied this issue not only among groups here in the U.S. but internationally. So he's looked at you know the the the, the ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia, a hated group, banned from participating in in, in, in certain occupations. Um, limited in in what schools they can attend and so forth, yet uh, outperforming the native population, both academically and economically throughout Southeast Asia. Um, You can point to groups like uh, the Japanese here in America. Um, There were were times when they couldn't own land in certain states, Um, were kept out of certain professions, were interned during World War II, uh, Japanese Americans today uh, uh, outperform whites uh, both academically and economically, and have for decades. So this whole idea that um, discrimination can be held up as this all-purpose explanation for group disparities is is refuted by uh, the experience of groups the world over. Uh, you you've written what is the first uh, biography of Thomas Sowell, I believe. Um, this is quite an achievement. I'd, I'd just like to ask uh, about what the writing process was like. Um, you know, how did you research the book? Whom did you speak with in, in order to get a picture of, of Sowell as a man? Uh, and what's the reception of the book been like so far? Well, the reception's been wonderful. Um, uh, uh, I couldn't have asked for a, a better reception. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of interest in soul and his work. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad, uh, I, I, I think, uh, I also did a, uh, a documentary film. I narrated a documentary film about soul's life for public television came out earlier this year. And, um, uh, that too is, um, has been received quite well. And one of the things I was particularly pleased about learning is that, uh, the producers of the film were able to, um, 
track who was watching it. You, you could watch it not only on your local public television station, but you could stream it on Amazon and YouTube and so forth. And they could, uh, could look at the demographics of who was, in fact, streaming it. And, and they trended younger. And I was quite pleased to hear that because one goal of the book was to um, to reach a younger a younger audience or, or to um, raise raise Tom's profile among people who had heard something about him, and so I, I think uh, both the book and the film have been able been able to do that so far. Um, in terms of the process of writing it, uh, you know, the biggest hurdle was um, uh, uh, Tom, <laughs> who who um, didn't have a biographer and 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 didn't want one. <laughs> I had been trying to uh, convince him to um, to to cooperate on a, on a book for some time. Um, you know, I, I could have written it without his cooperation, and he encouraged me to do so. But I wanted I wanted his cooperation, and and I finally, uh, you know, he's going to be ninety one years old uh, at the end of June. So maybe I just uh, wore him down. He's getting soft in his dotage, but um, but I I um, it might. This this has been a, a sort of um, not a lifelong project, but almost a lifelong project. I, I first uh, learned about Thomas Sowell when I was in college in the early 1990s, and I worked on the school paper and was sitting around having a conversation about affirmative action with some fellow students one day. And um, someone said, Jason, you sound like Thomas Sowell. And I said, Thomas who? And uh, the person wrote down the name of a book on a sheet of paper, and I went to the school library that evening and checked it out and, and read it in one sitting and, and went back the next day and checked out the school's entire Thomas Sowell collection and uh, have, have been hooked ever since. Um, after I joined the Wall Street Journal uh, editorial page in the mid-1990s, uh, I first got to meet Sowell in person. He would come through New York on book tours and meet with various editorial boards. And so that's when I initially... Uh, got to meet him. And then in the mid-2000s, I went out to Hoover, uh, the Hoover Institution where he's based and um, at, at Stanford University, and wrote up a profile of him for the paper. And that's when we sort of struck up an, uh, an acquaintance that, that has endured. And pretty much since then, uh, since the mid-2000s, I've been uh, trying to get him to, to cooperate on letting me work on a book. And unfortunately, a lot of the people I would have liked to interview about the book, people who knew him in his in his in his, in his student days and so forth have, have now passed away. So I was a little annoyed that he took so long to uh, to say yes to the project. But um, some some of his friends went to bat for me. Shelby Steele went to bat for me, and and Walter Williams went to bat and said, you know, Tom, J- somebody's going to write this book. It might as well be Jason. And Tom uh, Tom finally finally cooperated by sitting for a, a bunch of long long interviews. He was very generous with his time, and um, and and so the biggest the biggest. Uh, uh, hurdle was was just getting him to to do that. Uh, a final question, you know, for for a listener who might not have read any soul, you've mentioned uh, conflict of visions. Uh, I wonder, you know, what are the three books that you would recommend for somebody to to begin? Because the you know with soul's work, because the 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 body of it is is enormous. He is he is the author of many many books, columns. Um, it's it's really a lifetime project to read it all, uh, but where would you start? He he published a, a book um, uh, in 2011 uh, titled uh, "The Thomas Sowell Reader," and it's um, sort of a sampling of his work. It has some book chapters in there. It has a bunch of columns, uh, longer essays, and so forth on on various topics. Um, 
social theory, economics, culture, race, and so forth. Um, so I might, I might start there uh, to get a sort of taste of soul. And then if you do want to go a little deeper, uh, I, would, I would go to the con- a conflict divisions and, and read that just to sort of understand his mindset, where he's coming from on all these issues. And, and, um, and an, a, a third favorite of mine is a book called Race and Culture, which was published in 1994 and is part of a cultural trilogy. Uh, the other two books are called uh, Conquest and Culture and Migrations and Culture. And Race and Culture, however, is, is uh, kind of a summary of the trilogy. Uh, and it's a book that, that Tom is quite proud of. Uh, it, was, it was years in the making, more than a decade in the making in writing this book. And, um, and, and, and it, it really remains relevant to a lot of the discussions we're having today about uh, racial disparities, about inequality. Um, uh, and, and, and I think um, you'd get a really uh, a nice overview of Tom's work in this area. In, in that book. So that would be a third book I'd recommend. Thanks very much, Jason. Uh, don't forget to check out Jason Riley's work on the Manhattan Institute website. That's manhattan-institute.org. The new book is called Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. It really is terrific. Uh, we'll link to the author page uh, in the description of the podcast. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal and on Instagram, at CityJournal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Jason Riley, thanks very much. It's good to talk with you, and and, uh, congratulations on the superb and fascinating book. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.